Welcome to an episode of Trash Future. It's the free one. It's the free one. Exactly. Riley Correct. isn't even here to be irritated no, by that. I, 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 Can I mm. pretend to be irritated? If you want to. Yeah, let's, let's <gasps> do it. It's the free one. <laughs> hey, stop that, you guys. Don't we come over there. So, uh, <laughs> as you can tell from um, Riley not being on this, he's in Canada. He's return, returned to his ancestral homeland temporarily. Mm. and uh, But he did record a big smart important segment about big smart important things and quite frankly i haven't listened to it yet so i don't know what the topic is we don't know we don't know because we haven't listened to it and i'm the only one who's going to listen to it but i figured mm. riley digging he's into doing the that heady. thing where he goes steepling his fingers like and can you just tell me what is your name <laughs> <laughs> what am i doing here how did i get here is this my beautiful wife <laughs> <laughs> is this the clock i just drew <laughs> I figured we would absolutely have yeah. no problem delving into important intellectual topics, and so we should keep this episode extra stupid. Um, extra fun, <laughs> extra for the hogs, because it's just going to be us. And if you heard a voice you didn't quite recognize, we are joined by our special friend, great friend, friend of the show, Maddie Lipchansky. Mm. Maddie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, mm. Like I was telling you before, I'm fresh off of um, dismantling the FBI. Excellent. With my friends in the Republican Party. Thank you for your service. Did you hear? I'm just going to derail this immediately. Let's go. There's much of a rail to go on. But did you hear a guy in Ohio tried to get into the FBI's office in Cincinnati with a gun, was stopped, fled on the interstate, and at time of recording is now shooting at the cops from a cornfield off the interstate? My culture is not a costume. <laughs> <laughs> mm. My uh, my official statement is that it do be like that, and I wish him uh, not well, but not you know good luck. <laughs> I, I I wish him a peaceful surrender. <laughs> so before we start on a very funny topic that uh, is is relevant to our lives and also about the most us kind of product ever made and sold, I did want to talk about something that's related to the UK really quickly. And I'm just going to run through some facts and figures because I feel like it's better if we both explain it this way and then also have uh, with Maddie, who does not live in the UK, mercifully, uh, to react to some of these things. So so uh, news came out earlier this week that utility bills uh, are going to rise to an annual cap of 4,266 pounds a year. That's an estimate. And that's also about a 60-odd percent increase on the previous increase, which happened in April, which was a 57% increase. Yeah, it's like a, a net sort of more mm. than doubling of from when things were, you know, 1% more normal. Right. And the Office of National Statistics in the United Kingdom estimates median earnings in the UK are about £31,000 a year. Median earnings, which can include family income. Um, yeah, meaning- it's, it's fine, because everyone got that, like, 200% pay rise recently. Right. Right. But uh, yeah, of course. I want I want to just give a couple more facts here. So median earnings for people in wholesaling, retailing, hotels, and restaurants uh, is about fifty or correction twenty one point five thousand pounds a year, and the London living wage, which is in some ways aspirational because people are definitely paid less than this, is about twenty thousand five hundred pounds a year. So this is to suggest the median earner in the UK would see utilities eat up thirteen percent of their pre tax income. That's the median. And if you work in retail and hospitality, it would be about 20%. So 
Someone on the London living wage would see about 21%. And uh, the Observer recently reported that about 11.5 million people will be spending more than a quarter of their net income, so post-tax income, on fuel by October. Yeah, and in real Insane. terms, what this means is that there are a huge number of people who will flatly not be able to pay their energy bills. Correct. And one of the things yeah. to point out uh, is that many people ha- are set up to uh, have like an averaged bill, which is taken out in direct deposit at the beginning of the month. And we we're already seeing reports of people getting rate rises and seeing direct debits going from, say, 200, 300 pounds a month to 1,200, 1,600 pounds a month. In many cases, the people who have been reporting this have been saying, this is more than I earn in a month. And I'd also say, bear in mind, there's about 54 million adults in the UK, about 31 million of them earn enough to pay income tax. And so of that uh, 23 million who do not, uh, that not all of them are in work, but you have to consider for a second what that means. That's 20 million adults in the UK do not earn more than 12,570 pounds per year of taxable income. Mm-hmm. And at the basic rate, the state pension is about 9,400 pounds a year. But, it's like a hundred something pounds a week, right? Yeah, 181 pounds a week. You also pay income on uh, even if your state income, state pension income, and other income sources mm. are more than the personal allowance, which is 12,570, you pay income tax on that. So effectively, if you were earning from pension benefits, et cetera, exactly one pound beneath the tax threshold, the, the, the point at which you have to pay income tax, your, your annual cost would be a mere 34% of your pre-tax See, income. This, this, this is why the whole sort of like mm. generational conflict to allied class conflict thing has always bothered me, right? Is that like, uh, you can go, oh, you know, these boomers, they're, they're killing the world, they expect us to pay for it. Um, which is, yeah, to an extent, if you average it out across a whole population. But there's also a lot of them who are extremely poor and who are going to mm. get uh, killed by this. So... Mm. And, and something I want to point out really quickly is that, you know, the, the, the finger pointing, pointing culprit here is people say it's the war in Ukraine, which is true in terms of mm. international gas prices and spot prices. Sure. However, the UK produces about half of its natural gas domestically, and about 20% of the gas that is imported is imported as liquefied natural gas. About 20% is imported via pipeline from Norway. And the rest are re-imports, which I don't really understand, but I presume mm. is gas that is... Uh, imported from from other suppliers that you, it's not you, you don't you don't audit the molecules but uh yeah well we we don't have a lot of like liquid natural gas infrastructure in this country bizarrely and, and part of the reason for that is because we've been cutting it um yeah well why would you need gas storage evil vladimir putin snuck into the heart of british government and made us cut all of our gas storage and also not build as much mm. in the way of renewables or nuclear as we needed to. He yeah. got you guys too? He yeah. did. <laughs> and the thing about this is that li- liquid natural gas imports in the UK are primarily from the US and from Qatar. About 12% of the UK's LNG imports are from Russia, which means Russian gas being cut off or whatever you want to say, you know, uh, being uh, more difficult to access or a shorter supply in Europe, that's only about 2.5% of the UK's gas supply. And about 30% of the UK's electricity comes from burning natural gas. So what we're basically in a situation is that, like Alice just said, this is, everything's privatized, they've been cutting supply, everything that they make, uh, they just basically pay out in shareholder dividends and bonuses. Um, The UK government refuses to intervene in any way that could stop private fossil fuel companies making as much profit as possible. And if this means forcing millions of people into absolute poverty and many more millions into relative poverty, they'll do it. And so far, Labour has proposed scrapping value-added tax on fuel bills. 
um, has also called for additional taxes on fossil fuel companies, but nothing concrete about cutting fuel costs or- Keir Starmer isn't even like at work. He's still on vacation. He's on holiday. With Riley. In I was going to say, yeah, he's president, right. presently on holiday and, and he has said- great things about the wines that come from the unique <laughs> microclimate of the Niagara Scotland. And I think it's very important that we don't lose focus on that in this difficult time. Yeah, so he's basically said he's on holiday, he'll get to it. And meanwhile, British Petroleum has earned an 11-figure profit so far this year, or about 14.5 billion US dollars. And there's one little note that I thought was very funny as I was researching these factoids, just to describe the situation in terms of this slow-moving catastrophe that we're heading towards, because it's, a, it's basically, the BBC is going, you know, doing infographics and saying, here's how you can take, like, take one-minute showers and thus save 145 pounds a year when, you know, that is what, like, Save a tenth of one month's energy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but for, for the record, the UK gas supply system was not privatized until 1986. The UK electricity supply system was not privatized until 1990. And it's obviously been opened up to lots and lots of institutional investors and, and you know, of funds and such around the world. And Alice, you might appreciate the fact that Scotland Gas Network's uh, public limited company, which is mm -hmm. the transporter of gas in your part of Scotland... Is thirty seven point eight percent owned by the Ontario Teachers Pension Board. <laughs> Amazing, right. which is to say that the teachers who have suffered through Riley as a student are now getting their revenge on us. <laughs> Not on us, on me, on me mm. specifically. Why am I paying for him? The, the, I, yeah, this is the energy this prices is... go up. It's like, oh fuck yeah, but. <laughs> Gonna get a gonna get a skidoo when I retire. Go, eh? go, going out for a rip eye that'll be twelve hundred quid. I mm. I mean it's just I I I don't know how I don't get tired of saying the same very very basic point all the time every week, which is this is a market that shouldn't be a market. It's there's no reason there was no sort of market shaped hole here. It's been forced into being a market. And it's a very inefficient and very deadly way of administrating things, administering things. The only market we need is a pork market. And oh, that's why I mean, we're getting trust. Well, I guess I bring it up because, Maddie, I know that, for example, uh, last winter, so 2020 to 2021, there was this insane price shock because of winter storms in Texas in the US. And because of the way Texas works and because of the way that they sort of strong armed people into these deals where you can get more or less your utilities at spot prices. There were people who were suddenly being hit by, you know, $1,500, $2,000 utility bills for, for the month of January because of the winter storm. And that's, it's not as much of like an immediate thing in terms of happening overnight and then going back to normal. What's happening here in the UK is it's, it's being declared months in advance. The change happens overnight and then it never goes back. And yeah, it's, it's sort of the chronic versus the acute. My mind was kind of reeling when you were talking about the prices of things uh, in a way that like, oh, that's what it's going to be. Like we have this number that it's just the cap is basically what it ends up being at, right? Yeah. yeah. Case, I, I, ironically, yeah. That, that is a case of a controlled economy, right? Like it's, cool. a, it's a directed economy in that sense. Yeah. And, um, and, and there's something about like, you know, I feel like here when the gas prices go up or the, the heating prices go up, it's because of some freak thing that will obviously keeping happening more and more for no reason that we can possibly describe or anticipate. But, um, you know, when it happens, it's just sort of like, oh, well, something happened and now stuff's expensive. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's not on purpose. This idea that I feel like this, so every time listening to the podcast, mostly just everything over there is just very much just like bad stuff is coming and we're not going to do a goddamn thing about it. 
all the time. Um, One of the things that I think is is perhaps interesting to compare this to in the UK is um, student tuition fees. Because mm-hmm. the UK didn't have tuition fees from basically the Atlee Labor government until um, 1998. And I'm pretty sure they didn't go into full effect until 2003. But they were introduced under Labor, of course, under Tony Blair. And in 2010, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong because I wasn't in the UK, under the coalition government between the Tories and the Lib Dems, they raised the cap from 3,000-ish pounds a year to like 9,000-ish pounds a year for tuition. Yeah, they did. And and they said, don't worry, this is just a guide price. Universities will will charge whatever they charge, but this is not... And then (laughs) what (laughs) happened... Huh. British, As British if friends. any university is going to advertise, yeah, we're shit. <laughs> we will take three. Yeah. And and most of the point, what happened is all of the universities started charging £9,000. That and the sort of uh, combined with the cuts to, to ESA uh, led to legitimate student riots in London, which achieved nothing other than some long prison sentences. Dave Gilmore's son went to jail for a bit. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I can't remember the name of the guy, but I know there was an activist who was like seriously beaten and sustained brain damage from a cop, like a territorial support group cop beating his ass with an asp, you know, like those like metal but um, telescoping yeah, yeah. batons. Oh, I thought you were talking about the snake. <laughs> so can, he's getting he's Cleopatra pilled. <laughs> you see Cleopatra. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's actually an insane, there's this, um, this Italian like pulp artist uh, I think he died recently or in the last 10, 15 years, but he, he was in his heyday in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And one of his insane pulp illustrations was like a like a bank holdup where they're holding a big snake at people. And they're just like, listen, motherfucker, give us all the money or this snake is going to bite you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm. Basically, that's, that's the UK gun, economy. What about a gun that fires a snake? I think that would be effective. <laughs> oh, there you go. Mm. Now we're talking. Uh, uh, TM, TM, uh, no one else can do this. Patent pending, patent pending. Yeah, I think anytime yeah. that you can introduce, uh, you can turn something into a market when it doesn't need to be and then introduce a price that everything's mm. going to be at and you can get the worst of every possible economy and type of organizational structure. I think you got to take that every time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a failure of planned economy and market economy yeah, at the same time. It's so good. Well, I want to talk about, I suppose, since we... we we wanted this to be a fun episode as well as a uh, an episode where this we hasn't uh, been, this hasn't been fun. Hasn't been fun. pensioners freezing to death yeah, in the winter and uh, boiling yeah. in the summer. But if you're boiling in the summer gun? like we are right now, you know, if this if you got bitten by a snake that was fired out of a gun and you're thirsty, and your doctor says, "Hey, you need to make sure you drink a certain amount of water today to get over per day to get over your snake gun induced injury," <laughs> I have found an <laughs> object that will help you. This is a beautiful segue. It's called the Hydrate Spark water bottle. And I uh, it is. Smog. You can never have, have enough hydration in your sparks. Exactly. Mm. Well, here's the thing it is an app connected water bottle, it is a Bluetooth sensor equipped water bottle. I'm going to say this mm-hmm. in fairness, people use it because it can connect to fitness apps. And it can tell you how much water you've consumed over the course of a day. However, okay. it is equipped in its app with a sensor that will tell you how much water is left in the bottle, which is transparent. Right. Well, here's a question, mm. Nate, for you, if you're going to be critical of everything. Um, how else would you, would you possibly know that the, the water is low or even high? Well, I mean... 
quite frankly, so trying to drink from the water bottle. Yeah, well, water is water. Famously, is transparent, right? So you need this. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One of the issues that I have discovered with this, however, from reading reviews and no joke, from joining the Facebook community centered around owners of this water bottle. <laughs> well, I found out that in the United Kingdom, the 620 milliliter or 21 ounce version is 74 pounds. Awesome. Worth every penny. You, you, you could pay for up to a minute of electricity with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've discovered that uh, that the sensor has to be set by calibrated by you inflate, you know, filling the bottle up and then drinking it all and then pressing a button again so it knows where it's at when it's full and empty. Apparently, this sensor uh, has to be reset a lot because it just goes out of whack. So, uh, people have reported everything from I drank a fuckload of water and it reported that I drank like 10 ounces of water today to uh, my app thinks that I've drank 10 gallons of water today. (laughs) My app thinks I've got that MDMA brain condition. (laughs) I love the idea of just buying a like one of those digital kitchen scales that you have to like tear yourself every time. Okay. Yeah. What, what you all need to understand guys is that if I didn't have this water bottle telling me, warning me when the water bottle was full of water, then I might think it was empty and then get really scared when I hold the water bottle up and I see a person's face through it and it looks all big and weird. Yeah, you, you, when I when my water bottle is empty, what I like to do is to like celebrate that fact by inverting it over all of my sensitive electronics. Um, and mm. but because water is transparent, that's that's usually a very risky prospect for me. But now, uh, now I don't have to worry about this because it can tell yeah. me if there's water still in there. And I shouldn't and, do that. And your sensor hygiene is great. You're always checking it. Exactly, that's important. And so I've also found s- sensor ownership is so important. I'm sorry, Maddie. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's fine. It wasn't a good joke. Nobody laughed. Well, I was about to, but then, <laughs> but then someone talked over you. See, this wouldn't be a problem if we were all hydrated. And That's true. We're, we're That's all right. dehydrated. We're all cranky. Yeah, um, I've, I've well, got another my one. glass of water is now empty, or is it? I don't know. There's uh, no I, sense, I'm actually so. the opposite. I've drank 14 gallons of water according to my smartphone, so maybe <laughs> that, I just have to piss so bad. That's why I'm in such a hurry. I've actually, I've actually hacked because before the, I, I think everyone should know before the episode you sent us all a hydrate spark, so I've been using it obviously, and uh, I've been, I've, I've, I've jailbreaked mine to uh, also mine Bitcoin for how much water I drink. So I've been, I've drank uh, twenty gallons of water today, and I am in the hospital right now. It's where I'm recording from. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I've yeah. jailbroken mine, so it works with um four loco. Yeah, That's vodka. Right. <laughs> I've drunk nine gallons so far. So there, there are a couple of things on this this device, though, that also make it extremely funny. So for one, it has an LED sensor, or rather an LED indicator on it that will start glowing. You can set it to uh, remind you to drink more water. So your nice. bottle will start glowing. However, apparently this is a feature that is only included on the pro model which is the functionally the same as the regular model and if you buy and if you buy the regular model you have to basically pay for dlc on your water bottle or you can't control the leds so basically it, you, if you want your bottle to glow like a disco light you got to pay I can't figure out because so you I actually to... can and should jailbreak your water bottle. That's what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. Instead get of like the, uh... getting a water bottle brought to you by Winra. Yeah, water water bottle wants to be free is what all the the web yeah. guys are saying. Right. So another thing that I've discovered from it is that the app is uh, somewhat unstable, and so I've gone uh, through and looked on the uh, on the Facebook community 
Um, a lot of people want to like join email friend groups based around this water bottle, which That's I find desperately sad. <laughs> I, but there's one guy, this is from August 7th. His name is Mike. And he says, is there an app problem? I'm missing about 1.1 thousand days of my streak. <laughs> my, my, my water drinking streak. Yes. The, the, I, but I, I think maybe gamification as a, as a sort of a model has gone too far. If we can sort of abstract your this idea of like a, a winning streak or like a sort of a streak of consistency to the thing that you have to do or you die. Mm. Or one of the things that you have to do or you die. Because um, right now I'm on my like 31 year breathing streak. I'm feeling very good about it. I don't, I don't really need an app to like note that down. Um, and I, I, I don't know. It's, it's very strange to me. I was very interested in some of these software problems because, you know, me and Milo are no stranger to the fact that like a lot of times when you get devices that are notionally Bluetooth controllable or smartphone compatible, Mm -hmm. their apps tend to be really fucking shit. And uh, we have experienced this with a heater in the studio, which is notionally Bluetooth controllable, but is uh, it is it is it is we we regularly discover that either it's freezing cold in the wintertime because it hasn't turned on or it's balls hot in the wintertime because it has turned on too much. Um, but I was yeah, interested. But now one of those is going to cost you £10,000. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll probably won't be using Bluetooth. But I noticed another comment in this group where someone had said that they'd updated the app to a new version. Uh, they're still getting the spinning circle next to water, which I don't know what that issue is. My, my water is buffering. My water is doing a blue screen <laughs> yeah. of death. But he says that... Uh, He's basically done everything he can, forced closed the app because the app is freezing, restarted the iPhone, reopened the app, still the spinning icon buffering, logged out of app, repeated steps one to three, still the same issue. And then one of the mods says, you can try deleting and reinstalling the app, also turning airplane mode on for 30 seconds to refresh the connection. And there is something like, I realize that's just garden variety troubleshooting, but there's something Mm. about I'm turning on and off airplane mode to be able to drink water from my bottle that just, I don't know what the right word is here. It's, it, it is dystopian, right? Uh, but yeah. it's dystopian in a very silly way, which is perfect for us. Yeah, it's a little bit of a dessert after the regular savory dystopian stuff we had up first. Yeah, it's it's like you, you now have no money and also no heating or, or cooling for that matter and no electricity. But also, uh, you can't get into your special boy water bottle. It's like it's like that. Uh, is it a Philip K. Dick story where the guys like pay money to unlock his own front door to leave? It's just yeah. that for uh, That's, a cup in your house. It's Ubik, isn't it? Yeah, like I think the, so. yeah, like to get out of his house, he has to put money in the door. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I the have reason to upgrade my heater to the pro model to turn it off in the winter, so I don't pay uh, ten thousand dollars. <laughs> somebody, somebody shared a, a photo of this in the United States. They're selling these in a store uh, at a, like I guess a hi-fi store for a hundred and ten dollars per bottle. I I am I'm buying one of these. I am putting it in the more like chillery Clinton drink koozie, <laughs> and I am achieving Buddha nature. Alice, I, I have I have so much better for you than than chillery Clinton. Um, I have seen. I mean, on one hand, there's your garden variety people have gotten theirs uh, really done up with you know sort of like hologram rainbow colored their name got and a, stuff got like a that. Laser etched portrait of Robert Mueller, like the T-shirt you would buy, the airbrush T-shirt you buy in Key West or something for like spring break. But I see another one where someone has gotten a koozie cover for it that makes it look like the world's biggest vape. And it says, <laughs> when did you buy this? <laughs> it says God is within 
with her, she will not fail or something to that effect. But it's it's got the Hydrate Spark logo on it, so it seems as though it's been extremely, extremely customized. Um, I'm, getting my, one. Uh, I'm getting my water, my Bluetooth water bottle uh, lowered and getting hydraulics put in, and I'm driving it around. <laughs> yeah, I got like super under lighting. Yeah, yeah. I love this. I love I love to consume. I love to be a consumer. It doesn't lead me to any strange or weird places. Um, I, I say as I sort of engrave a bunch of my favorite quotes from my brother, my brother and me uh, on on my water bottle that won't let me drink unless it's unless airplane mode is off. <laughs> One of the things that got me about this is I understand because, you know, I use a fitness tracking app for just logging workouts, checking. Yeah, I, you know. I, I use one of those for leaking sort of operational information to my enemies. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I, I was so excited by the Strava app that doxed a bunch of uh, U.S. military bases <laughs> in Syria. The reason why I came on the show in the first place and got connected to the whole thing that I, I wound up getting a Strava enabled thing to... Uh, track my workouts. So if anyone wants to try to geolocate me, I suppose they can. Um, but obviously, <laughs> like, there's the thing where you can enter in any fitness. It's like, there's one user in East London who is just like jogging perfect laps of a tiny studio <laughs> yeah. for eight consecutive hours. Yeah, he's just running <laughs> up and down stairs nonstop trying to <laughs> unplug things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, a little, a little peek behind the curtain there because um, I have had... The worst week in the You've world. Had a day. You've had a day. Upgrading our studio computer. And uh, you have been such wonderful good sports with this episode record time running a full hour plus longer than it was supposed to. Oh, because it's always a joy. Yeah, because because mm. I, I've been running, screaming, throwing, shitting, throwing up, <laughs> crying, etc. Yeah. <laughs> it was nice to get a peek behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. But according to Nate's water bottle, he's doing fine. To see to see Nate shitting and crying. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, if I if only if only I hadn't left my water bottle in airplane mode, I could have stayed hydrated throughout this process. But yeah, uh, yeah. Well, what happened was the reason why the audio kept not working is because it was all rooting through your water bottle. <laughs> and <laughs> crying, <laughs> shitting, and throwing up can all be quite dehydrating activities. So you want to make sure. Yeah, I got I got an idea, guys. It's a uh, it's one of those New Yorker cartoons with the guy's crawling through the desert, right? Mm. He's dying because he's mm. so thirsty. And uh, another guy is saying, have you tried unplugging your water bottle and plugging it back in again? I would do whatever the sort of the New Yorker equivalent <sighs> of numbers is. Yeah, I think. I, uh, it's like uh, upwards of three sensible chuckles. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I would drink from my water bottle, but it won't pair with my Samsung Galaxy S7. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Ninen in the desert. I the, genuinely the Samsung Galaxy Tab joke gets me every fucking time. Uh, mm. I'm not sure what it's to tell great. you. This is it's just it's a known feature of of my brain. Right. That, Dan Ninen, come on the podcast. Yes, yes, please. I, I I don't know if if uh if any of you either in your your personal choices or from parents, family, <laughs> etc., have bought stupid things and then regretted it, like something that seemed cool at the time. I, I, I feel like I'm not really prone to buying dumb shit, tech stuff, whatever, but I feel like I've, I've never asked my mom if she's bought any insane devices because I can only Nathan, imagine that she all must All I have. do is buy dumb shit. All I have are, are, are useless trinkets. Um, yes, no, 100%. I... A thousand times, yeah. <laughs> I, I was yes. just going to ask if anyone, because like we can all 
agree that the Bluetooth connected sensor enabled water bottle with disco lights you have to pay extra for. Uh, as one of the reviewers whose reviews I read on Amazon said, this is basically like buying a car and you have to pay extra to pull down the windows, which to be fair, I'm sure is going They're to be bringing a thing. that in. I know. Exactly. Actually, no, some cars, there was some car that you had to get, yeah. you had to pay a subscription to get heated seats. It was a BMW. It was a BMW. Yeah. 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 Even, oh, yeah. So I'm but wondering, there, my people hate to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I would not buy a Bluetooth connected water bottle, but I'm wondering if you are willing to confess on this podcast, if this is going to be the, the you are not immune to propaganda zone when it comes to the tech industry and or gadgets, have any mm. of you bought devices that sounded cool and then you realize upon using them, they suck? Dumbest, dumbest thing I, I've ever bought that was app-enabled uh, was a tactical Garmin smartwatch. It was not very tactical, not very smart, and wasn't very good as a watch. Uh it's it's not the dumbest thing you might imagine, but uh, I I did not need to have a thing on my watch to set for tracking my sort of my heart rate just on the off chance I was going to go skydiving wearing it. But Alice, what if you did do that? That's true. What if I well, if I did do that, I would I still have it. I would go and. What if you fell out there. of a plane with nothing but your watch? Well, I the thing is, they would dig this watch out of a five foot deep crater that I had made. <laughs> Um, and like sort of pluck this off of whatever viscera remained and see that my heart rate was like a steady 70 beats per minute the whole way down, ice cold. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other than that, no, not much. She hit her top speed of all time. <laughs> That's right, yeah. A new, new personal best at skydiving, fastest time from plane to ground. That has yeah. actually, not, not quite that way, but that has happened to me where I've gotten a new personal best for, for speed of walking and I realized I forgot to turn my walking app off when I got on the bus. And so <laughs> <laughs> it thinks that I'm fucking hauling ass down Old Kent Road on a walk. It yeah, sort of, sort of last conscious action falling off a cliff is like turning on the like walking activity. I mean, you're going to be at the top of the leaderboard on Strava if you do that. <laughs> yeah, the Strava segment from top of cliff to bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been I get given a lot of like dumb gadgets by people like like parents or in-laws or whatever like for like Christmas or birthday presents. Not so much anymore now that I'm uh, a thousand years old and I don't receive sure. presents. Um but like i feel like i got <laughs> i remember like back when 3d printing was like new and exciting my parents got me uh, a 3d printer pen that i was really excited about ah. and it, it was a pen that was a 3d printer called the the three doodler i believe it was called <laughs> oh wow <laughs> sounds like sort of two slurs at once <laughs> it sure does and i mm. i was so excited i was like i like open it up i'm like i want to do so much shit i'm gonna like you know, like I want to become a, a multimedia artist. I want to like sell things at conventions that like are 3D printed drawings or whatever. And then I tried to use it. And the best I could do was like a little circle on my table that didn't even dry right. It was just like completely, it was a pen that would like, extrude plastic through its tip while you like drew with it. So it was basically like squeezing mm -hmm. a caterpillar. So it takes a shit. <laughs> uh, uh, basically so do doing like Saracoach. Wait, fuck. Yeah, I, remember, the I remember another jamming. one. Yeah. I, I remember, sorry, this is the whole segment is going to be like this because you'll say something, each of you, <laughs> yeah. and I'll be like, yeah, I remember another dumb thing I got. I I got um, a sort of like very retro styled word processor, like it was a Wi Fi enabled oh, typewriter things. called a FreeWrite. Yes. Uh, 
extremely annoying. Uh, both to use and also to be seen using, but I did buy one and I do still have it. So if anyone wants anything typewritten, <laughs> I've been eyeing one those because every time I like sit down to write something, I'm like, what if I'm not? Because you know, because then you start getting distracted, right? Which is the whole premise behind oh, one sure. of those things. I here's the problem with with buying anything that's sort of one of those anti-distraction things. Uh, you just go on your phone. Unless you like lock your phone in sort of like a timed safe or something, which I I refuse to do. Um, mm. w- you will just find other ways of distracting yourself. Anti-distraction does not work on me. I am distraction. <laughs> you were born in it. That's right. <laughs> Molded by it. by it. So now the question is, Mr. Milo Edwards, have you purchased any stupid tech things? Well, I, and I don't, I mean, as a, as a BMW owner, I'm not sure if people will be surprised by this or not, but I'm actually not, I'm not really much of a consumer. Mm. I don't really buy a lot of stuff. That's never really been a vice of mine like i like i like buying occasional big ticket items that i really want like a car or like i don't know a new laptop or whatever but like i don't i don't really go in for like uh gadgety things i i spend so much money on food like a huge amount of money on that but yeah i don't i don't really i don't really own any trinket i probably have been bought some real shit over the years like, i think probably the mo- the dumbest thing i've ever been bought is um like it look it's like a little shelf type thing like a phone size shelf with a hook over it so that if you're charging your phone you can hook it over the plug that's plugged into the wall so your phone sits on a i guess if you were using a really high in the wall plug socket to charge your phone i can't really think of the it's a, that's a, such an unusually specific gift like someone has been yeah. to like has been to your home has been like measuring from from wall sockets I, I, well they fucking hadn't because i've never used it not once <laughs> I, it was bought for me like over 10 years ago now milo all the all the money you spend on food uh the plates you're eating the food off of are they perhaps weight censored so your your phone knows how much how much how many pounds of food you're eating a day I mean that that we would be a good that. idea, but yeah. un- unfortunately, due to my cultural love of Greece, it would be a very expensive habit. So I'm always breaking <laughs> the plates. <laughs> I have not been gifted or bought anything stupid in the tech realm. However, in the adjacent look at you two, you're free of sin. In the adjacent to this podcast, I did one time see an ad for, and this is really embarrassing. I saw an ad for what I would describe as vaporwave jumpers and the designs looked stupid but also very very cool and i said well fuck it why not these are funny i'll get them in worst case scenario we can wear them at a live show if they're things i would never wear however what i didn't realize was i don't know if how they were screen printed or what they were made from but they were like they looked shiny in a way that wasn't cool at all and they also trapped heat, unlike any garment I have ever worn in my life. They were Perfect like for this winter, then a trash bag. So you can imagine us, wrap. yeah. Imagine us on stage under lights, just drenched in sweat. That's why you need the bottles. Exactly. So. <laughs> In a way, this was the perfect use case for the Bluetooth-enabled water bottle that would tell I've, us when to drink water. I've mm. remembered another one. Oh no! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so this this isn't a tech product. It pretended to be a tech product. Uh, what I what I bought was um, a, a jacket that was supposedly very very advanced because I needed a new jacket and I I was willing to like splash out and spend a horrendous sum of money on it. 
um, and have mm-hmm. this be like my one jacket and just make that my personality or whatever. Um, and and what it is is it, it's a completely normal waterproof jacket, but it's made in large part of copper wire. So, and this is apparently because of like space reasons or Elon Musk or some shit like that. But so now I, I'm just wandering around wearing this admittedly very nice jacket. Uh, just going, oh, if it rains, I will be the most electrocuted a person has ever been. You'll be the most green a person has ever been. You're also going to get Someone's going to like knock you out and strip your jacket. I'm, yeah, I'm going to get all of the copper wire stripped out of my jacket. I'm going to get like heavy metals diseases that people like didn't even know that you could still get. Uh, mm. I feel like the it, copper wire thing is like some woo-woo shit. Like baseball pitchers will always be advertising like copper bracelets that they oh, wear. 100%, that, like, yeah, 100%. I, I think the, the deal here was this brand has the most annoying, most sort of like tech hipster copy you've ever read. Uh, it's a brand called Volabat. Uh, and if I you, ain't if no Volaback girl. That's what I said too. Um, <laughs> and and their vibe was, um, you know, maybe it'll stop you from going COVID. I guess money, please. I love so, the idea of you being like, oh, Milo, your catalytic converter got stolen. Ha ha. That'll never yeah, happen I'm to me. I'm, I'm wearing literally one. wearing your catalytic converter. Yes, uh, mm. that that but is it's probably like the toxicity of Alice's emissions. That's right. This is probably my most like personally reprehensible purchase, uh, and it's it's not strictly speaking a tech thing, but it's so bad in and of itself that I had to talk about it and expose myself. So I, hmm. I welcome my my killing after after the revolution. Uh, but I would encourage it to go further. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I have to go because I've got to go and watch a show. Well, fun. we're gonna let hmm. Riley introduce his segment, and then we'll come back to say goodbye. Well, uh, thank you, past either me or uh, past versions of uh, my Cretinous friends uh, who will have potentially been taking over the hosting of the show while I am on a much-deserved holiday in Canada. Um, so with all of the uh, sort of uh, japes and goofs behind us, we are going to be putting on our uh, mortarboards uh, and, um, and sidling in uh, into class uh, because, once again, it is time to talk about how... What is becoming sort of a theme, actually, in terms of segments I like to do, which is to talk um, with an expert in their field about how some decision, often taken in the 80s or 90s, uh, that involved uh, blind faith in the market, uh, a kind of religious commitment to a homo economicus idea of rationality, and also um, a gigantic handout to private interests, has created... um, huge uh, politically charged and difficult to solve problems uh, that we are dealing with now. And so on that subject, um, I am very pleased to be speaking with uh, Dr. Craig Berry, the author of Pensions Imperiled, an authoritative account of the economy of private pension provision in the UK and the uh, UCL Institute of Public Policy uh, head of policy Um, and associate professor in economic policy, a man of many uh, uh, titles and, and official qualifications. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so I've been I've been wanting to do this uh, this episode ever since I saw just a random CNBC headline, um, which uh, said that many uh, younger baby boomers, the sort of first generation, who uh, moved from a, defi- a a pension where you just get a certain amount every month, moved to a pension where 
you just sort of your company kind of invests money on your behalf. You contribute to it privately. Uh, the four hundred one k, it's called. We have something similar in the UK. Well, it's being found that as soon as that is now being relied upon by a wide cohort of people, uh, they are about to. Uh, many of them are about to go broke in retirement. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean the the four hundred one k system in the US is. I would say it's broadly equivalent to the dominant form of pension saving in the UK, defined contribution schemes. Insofar as they're both individualized ways of, of uh, saving for retirement, you know, as an individual, you essentially take all the risks. Even if, even if these schemes or these products are provided via your, your workplace, your employer, um, they're not in any sense occupational pensions that they're, they're personal pensions wrapped up in, in different ways. And that essentially means that you know, I mean, on, on the surface, what you get out is what you put in, but what you put in goes through all kinds of different processes. Uh, you know, as, you, as you suggested, it's, it's invested in, in capital markets. Um, depends on you making some good decisions or your advisors and your fund managers making some good decisions. Also depends on quite a lot of luck for you individually, but for the economy as a whole, how well your investments do. And then there are all kinds of risks involved, depending on how, you know, irrespective of what kind of pot you end up accumulating over your working life, risks involved with what you do with that pot when you reach retirement too, where you may make um, the wrong decision, you may make the right decision, but get unlucky again. And you could end up be retiring on, uh, you know, a much less secure sort of financial platform than you had hoped or anticipated. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, th- I think that's I mean, for those, and we we talk sort of sometimes. I mean, in the show, you know, we, glibly sometimes we'll say we'll see a piece of um, you know commentary, or whatever, saying this will affect how millennials retire, and then we sort of scoffingly say, uh, "Well, no, they won't." Essentially, because many many people um, simply do not have the security of a um, number one, a defined amount of money that you just start getting when you turn a certain age. Uh, and that even if you do have that, as you say, uh, you have to make enough money for it to be. Um, you have to make enough money uh, for it to let for you to start contributing. Your employer has to offer it. Um, the idea of pay, the idea of I think um, uh, uh, removing from market forces the question of do I get to eat and have shelter after I stop working? Um, you know that that. That that thing that we had for what was essentially an anomaly for sort of the middle part of the 20th century uh, has been like largely dismantled, right? And it was dismantled in, as I understand it, it was dismantled um, in the 1980s. Correct. I mean, I was, you know, that's essentially when the dismantling began. Um, if you take the UK, for example, um, you know, the Margaret Thatcher's government began undermining the traditional pensions provision, which you can, you know, I mentioned occupational pensions. Technically, you would describe these defined benefit pensions where there's a there's a guarantee, you know, you, you will put aside some money from your earnings. There's a guarantee what that will result in in retirement or an approximate guarantee. And, and that pensions promise started to be undermined in, in the 1980s. Uh, in the UK and the US, take the UK, for example, uh, the factory government started I mean, the first thing they did was to unravel the state pension system. So, you know, you've got your private pension and your state pension, and uh, Thatcher reduced the the generosity and coverage of state pension systems by breaking the links to to earnings indexation, essentially abolishing the second state pension system. 
And so people became more dependent on the private pension. At the same time, um, she sort of, I mean, there wasn't sort of one, one big decision which ended the, the sort of traditional occupational pension system. But there was a, there was a series of steps. For example, um, the factory government allowed large companies, large employers with big pension funds to take contribution holidays. So a period of time, they just stopped contributing to their um, employees' pension fund. There was, you know, optimism about the, um, you know, health of the, the long-term health of the stock market, whereby investment returns themselves, even without employer contributions, would would do the job of catering for people's retirement. The optimism proved um, short-lived, and she also allowed various systems of tax relief to apply to defined contribution rather than defined benefit pen, pen, defined benefit pensions. Defined contribution schemes are those. Where we started, the individualized um, pension schemes. Um, so employers were able to access the same tax reliefs by setting these schemes up, which they had absolutely no responsibility for in terms of the financial risks. Um, able to access the same tax relief as they had done previously when they were managing occupational schemes, where employers did largely, you know, uphold the uh, take take care of the financial risks. You know, this was you know there was there was a broader context here. That, you know, it wasn't. You know, it's, Let's not exaggerate the extent to which sort of policy has driven all of these changes. There was, you know, deindustrialization. So a lot of the, you know, large employers that had these um, large pension schemes, uh, were, you know, were, were in industries that were no longer as, as profitable. You know, there was, there was privatization and pensions was kind of a, uh, a byproduct. You know, pen, pen, problems in the pension system were kind of a byproduct of privatization. And also in the UK, you had the sort of um, spread of American ownership of of, of co- British uh, corporations um, which tended to be associated with the, the closure of the traditional um, pension scheme so all of this stuff was happening with, without really any sort of deliberate attempt for it to have a, a pensions impact but factory government certainly helped help the process um, along the way and, and ensured that I mean in the 80s and 90s there was essentially very little pensions coverage in, in the private sector once the traditional scheme started to close and um, it was not until the sort of new Labour government in the UK of the 2000s, whereby that the, the, the policymakers tried to do something about that and actually um, put people into these individualised schemes instead, building on the sort of small steps towards this that the factory government had uh, put in place. So if I was to sort of try to understand this process in its totality, it would essentially be that the 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 universe where you reliably have a decommodified form of being able to support yourself to reproduce your life in your old age was a product was just because it was taken apart by a lot of different factors it was a product of sort of the mirror image of many of those factors such as a largely fordist economy a fordist economy that also had strong national trade union um, uh, representation as well um, and that had let's say a government that wasn't willing to sort of topple uh, uh, some of the institutional pillars of those things, and but that as as those things eroded, as as the, for example, national trade unions lost their power partly because of um, political intervention, partly because of also, as you say, the internationalization of the ownership of new kinds of companies and a new kind of economy. The this thing that was one sort of very quickly kind of fell away. Um, and 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 if would you say that's a sort of a, a way of understanding the process in its totality? 
Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, this was a, a period of um, capitalist expansion. I mean, to some extent, we knew this at, at the time, but certainly in, in hindsight. Um, and um, I think there was a sort of systemic um, assumption that pensions were, you know, a, a normal part of, you know, the, the, the social reproduction of labour. Everybody's going to get sick, so you have a health service. Everybody's going to get old, so you have pensions. And, you know, workers needed to be able to rely on, on the retirement income, whether that's provided by the state, um, which it was to some extent, but also provided privately. There needs to be some um, ability to depend on that on that future income. Um, or your incentive to work um, is essentially undermined and then capitalism kind of doesn't function if nobody's prepared to get out of bed and go to work. Um, you know, it, you know, it was a sort of a happy accident because capitalism was, an, you know, an age of you know high and stable growth. So these things were deemed to be affordable. It was in you know the economic the, the interests of the, the capitalist class as well as as well as the workers. And when when that um, you know happy accident started to sort of unravel, um, it was the the, ch the choice was between you know the profitability. Of, of capital and the welfare of, of workers and the, the farmer was invariably chosen. As I say, not in sort of a one-off, some big one-off decision, but, you know, step-by-step step over a period of, of, of a couple of decades. And that's, and that's where we are now. We, and what, so what, what's happened now is that the workers have been told, you are capitalists. We, we still have this myth that we have a sort of Collective pension scheme is provided by your employer, even even in in the US with the four hundred one ks, which are about as far from sort of collectivised provision as you can possibly get. And the UK is starting to adopt some of the, some similar features. You know, provided by your employers, your employer will contribute to your pension scheme if you contribute in certain ways. Um, but it is it's entirely um, individualised. So workers have had to become capitalists in order to um, you know, secure what they used to get as a product of their contribution to the economy as part of their remuneration. And, and I think that's something that, that, that you sort of talk about as well, which is part of, I think this sort of falls, correct me if I'm wrong, under what you call the kind of epidemic of misunderstanding around pensions, where we, where the system that we've, that again, the, the Thatcher government put in place, and I would say the sort of Blair and then coalition governments sort of attempted to make a little bit nicer by, for example, auto-enrolling people in the most um, preferential rate and, and so on and so on. But that um, what essentially we did is we, we have operated on the fundamental premise that, um, you're, that somehow you as an individual have to take responsibility for things that for the macro economy, more or less, for the macroeconomic conditions that abide at the time of your retirement. And that it's a kind of swindle, essentially. And but that that the your your concept of the epidemic of misunderstanding is sort of bigger than just the idea that we are putting in we're we're giving people individual responsibility to control things that it is completely impossible for them to meaningfully control. Also, this idea that, for example, if we don't do this, then a demographic time bomb will go off and like four uh four young workers will be paying for sixty million old people. So there's there's huge amounts of misunderstanding and sort of ideology and propaganda that get layered in here that facilitated this move to what is essentially a pre-broken system. Yeah, I mean, there's the great myth that um, pensions provision is a form of deferred 
consumption. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a spectacularly successful myth because it's partly true. Like you, you are putting money aside, whether you're doing that through paying taxes or contributing to a private pension, and you expect to get something at the end of it, and you do always get something at the end of it, even if it's not quite aligned with the promises that were made. So there's, you know, at the basic level, it is deferred consumption. But th- that that idea contains that you know a sense of certainty. If I've got, you know, if I put aside hundred pounds now, I will get that hundred pounds back in retirement. You know, revalued for inflation or whatever index form of indexation is used. Um, but that simply isn't the case anymore, at least not for enough people. Um, I think it's, this helps us to understand what pensions was in the first place. It was it was never about it's never a, a sort of classic savings or insurance scheme. Um, it was about the fact that as human beings we sort of live constantly with uncertainty. If you're gonna if you're gonna live for eighty plus years, things are gonna change you know, in your life. The economy changes, society changes, policy regimes change, and um, that creates a, a huge amount of uncertainty um, around those precise mechanisms of retaining the approximate value of the savings that you've put away or the tax that you've paid. And then no individual can, can possibly control these things. No government can possibly control all of these things, or they have a, a few more levers than the, the individual. So you, what, what I talk about in my book is this temporal anchoring function. And it's only really the state that can, that, you know, the state in its various different forms in different countries can provide this temporal anchoring function. Like, Taking responsibility for ensuring that the money that you, def- the income that you defer now has you know, approximately the same value when you need it in retirement, you know, taking on the burden of coping with uncertainty. Um, you know, employers can also do that job to some extent, and they did for a few decades, um, and I think still should be doing it now, but slightly more understandable that they're not to the same extent. The one group who certainly can't take responsibility for this is the individual. It's, you know, it's obviously completely fallacious, the idea that an individual is able to cope with these sort of macro level um, uncertainties and make all the right decisions all the way, all the way along. And, you know, it's just way, way too, way too many variables for them to possibly be able to, 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 to compute and control. Um, and it, the reason what we've ended up with, um, um, this individual, this, the idea of the individual as the temporal anchor, the idea that the individual is always going to contribute to their pension. The reason we've ended up with that is, as you allude to, is this, this sense of demographic time bomb that was upon us that um, you know, employers and even the state couldn't possibly be expected to um, provide decent pensions for all anymore because of, in fact, basically because there were going to be too many pensioners. You know, we've got that you've got increased life expectancy, but the baby boomers reaching retirement. Um, so it was, it was it was too much for these collective institutions to take on, and we had, you had to make the put these put these pressures back on the individual, and the individual would would respond, and it's a kind of creates a sort of market utopia where people act rationally by, isn't, by, isn't by saving if, more. If if people sink or swim, the the inherent assumption there is we need some people to sink. I mean that's yeah that's that's the bit the bit that's never said out loud, isn't it? But um, you know some some people will sink. Uh, you know, in in the US, you've got the the four hundred one k system where people's uh, savings are not are not sufficient for them to um, see out there in you know their entire lifetime in retirement. And some of those features have been imported to the UK with the uh, pension freedoms. 
Um, so yeah, um, if if you know if everybody contributed at a sufficient um, scale um, into their private pension, you can you can more or less approximate what they're gonna end up with, but they aren't going to. And um, you know, a highly marketized system is as, 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 as very good at honing in on the customers. I you know normal people who are going to provide them with the most opportunities for profit and, and the ones that are very good at identifying the ones that won't and have designed a system where they are providing the best services for those who are going to be the most profitable customers um, over the long term. That's where you need the state to, to step in um, and it you know isn't doing so in the kind of um, you know timeliness necessary to prevent you know you know, the, the coming epidemic of, of pensioner poverty, which we had we had sort of dealt with 10, 20 years ago, and it's, it's probably just 10, 20 years um, in our future. We're already seeing the signs of it. I mean, we, we see this as, as well, right? I mean, this is something that we've discussed many times before on the show, but any time a sort of British newspaper will go and do a kind of, I don't know, um, you might say investigative reporting piece at an Amazon warehouse, the thing that they always remark upon is that the average age of the people working there is always very high because as the as we sort of have accepted that in terms of pension savings we need a certain amount of sinking in order to keep the um to keep the system moving while being profitable for all the right people um that those who sink then end up um sort of shocked back into the labor market uh quite frequently in labor overproduction jobs such as um gig economy work if they can, or more often, things like uh, warehouse work. I mean, it was Walmart greeters was the um, stereotype in the US, right? Your 401k runs out and then you're then you're greeting people at Walmart, right? I mean, because there is a place for these people to be absorbed. And it's the same way that all overproduced labor gets absorbed, which is highly exploited, very low paid, poor condition work. Um, and in, in many cases, in these places that are often out of the way, right? Um, absolutely, and in 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 the UK, the the the, the success story was also always the the, the B and Q greeters, you know, sort of hard, hardware home improvement sort of store, and you know, typically older men who had been tradesmen in their earlier career take take on this job in retail, sort of advising customers about which tools to buy and how to fit a kitchen and so on. This was the great success story of how we how the workforce was responding to aging, but obviously the the numbers. Of, People who were able to take on like jobs like that was extremely tiny, and most older workers would were sort of in the hidden workforce that you're talking about um, in in the warehouses where um, you know actually when they would like to think we're at their sort of peak earnings potential, actually we're taking enormous pay cuts to, in order to stay in work one way um, or another. And, you know that's 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 partly because the the their pensions were not up scratch. You know, many will have been in good pensions. These, 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 these essentially the younger, younger boomers, the sort of forgotten generation. When you think of the baby boomers as, all you know, hugely wealthy, but um, not so much. It, it seems, especially the sort of younger end of the, the boomer generation, who um, may have been in good pensions early in their career. They may have had a, you know, they may have been in the public sector early in their career, but for the last half of their career they haven't had access to good pensions coverage. They're being forced to, to work for longer as a result. And, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say that, you know, um, if people want to work 
as, as long as possible. They should be able to, and we should we should we should encourage that. But nobody should feel like they're forced to, especially when you know ill health and disability becomes a, a big factor for many people at that age. And and what, one thing I would add is that this was just so unnecessary because they we, we were told that this was because we had to respond to sort of the baby boomers retiring was creating this aging society. So therefore, I mean, we couldn't afford their pensions anymore. But the baby boomers all had a lot of kids because they could afford to have kids. So those those kids were the sort of demographic demographic dividend. These people like my age, uh, you know, people in their thirties now with, with boomer parents who there's, there's loads of us, and we should have been able to sort of finance good pensions um, and you know replenish the system with contributions. But essentially, it's not because we couldn't afford to. We were, we were not allowed to. You know, the the mechanisms by which we were able to do so were just were, were taken away. And, and I think there's an important step back we can take as as well to wonder well why is that why did that happen, um, and I mean one of, I think one of the effects is that now um, you cannot if you want to talk about say nationalizing some some uh, uh, thing that's often you know let's say invested in maybe by risk averse uh, asset managers such as pensions you say oh you can't nationalize the railway because that takes away you know little old Doris's uh, annuity right it, it means that instead of Instead of having the uh, benefits and burdens of social cooperation be based on cooperation, we've sort of hardwired private ownership um, uh, and, and so on into this because we've kind of tied the bomb of private ownership around pensioners, essentially. So you can't get rid of it. You can't. He can't sit up. He can't. We can't. The Britain can't step off this landmine of private ownership, or else it will blow up and destroy all the pensioners' annuities. Because the solidarity element, the intergenerational solidarity element, has been removed. Absolutely, um, and you see similar arguments around, um, you know, like fossil fuel companies, where you know any 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 threat to the you know profitability of uh, polluters is a problem because you know it's pension funds that own all the shares in these companies. When I mean, it isn't, it's 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 exaggerated, but it's it's almost like the the threat that's that's hanging over us when you have a you know what I would. See so as a highly financialized pension system, and this was this was true of uh, you know the golden age, the traditional occupational pension funds, as well as as well as today. Um, when you have a highly financialized system whereby our pensions are dependent on um, you know in, investment in the in, you know the, the largest companies, the, the the key industries of the economy, then it you know it does breed conservatism in how you're able to. Um, Respond to sort of change in the economy, or how you're able to sort of manage manage transition, um, because you know, lo and behold, anybody threaten the, the pensions, and you'd like to think somebody stops to think, well, maybe it would have been better if our, our financial futures weren't put in that sort of kind of jeopardy in the first place, which was which was never necessary. Yeah, I mean, it's something you write. Um which is in, in, in the early pages of your book. And I think this is a, a sort of a sentiment that we've really thoroughly explored in the last sort of just under a half hour, which is rubbish pensions are an affront to our essential humanity. Um, and I think we can, we can sort of see that this idea, this idea that you shouldn't just basically sink or fuck off and die or um, just keep going until you stop being useful to someone who counts is something that I think if we all had a choice, we would want to feel like was happening for us. We would want to feel like we could 
as by working together opt out of that uh, that we could we could all live the kinds of lives that we think are worthwhile and that we could do that through cooperation rather than maintaining the sink or swim um, competitive element that is introduced as you say by essentially a lie, a falsehood, an idea that we are meaningfully competing as opposed to just buying a lottery ticket, essentially, right? And so I, I really sort of, I think that this really illuminates, um, you know, what, what you say, that rubbish pensions are in fact an affront to our essential humanity, complicated though they may be. It's, uh, you know, you could say this about a lot of different parts of the economy, um, not to say pensions are only or even our, our biggest problem. But yeah, I stand by that. That kind of statement because it's it's that exploitation of um, you know just sort of biological function that we can't avoid you know getting old and and there will there will come a time when you can't contribute to the labour market in a way that's going to you know enable you to sort of meet your your basic needs so you have to have you know you know obviously increased life expectancy. Is is kind of a good thing um, that we're that we're living longer. So you know, until recently, we were living longer anyway. So you need to have some sort of provision um, for people's financial security in in later life. It isn't just down to sort of good luck or your family helping you out, um, or you know, the the, the fortune of being being able to work um, for longer because many people are, are, are simply not able to and. It, for for that to become a, a sphere of sort of competition and exploitation is is just it's really crap, um, and, and and as I say, like unnecessary. It's not a system that anybody would choose. It's a system that enriches, you know, a, f- a few companies in a, in a few industries, but is essentially completely irrational. Um, if you're going to have you're going to have the state. Um, there are all kinds of things. I think the state should do a lot more things in our society and our economy, but there are all kinds of things I f- think the state could probably do a little bit less of. But if there's one thing you want the state to do a bit more of, it's to, it's to ensure that we're, you know, able to enjoy a, you know, a slice of retirement be, be, be before we die. You know, there are question marks about when, when retirement should begin. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, 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 I think we should be growing up to, Growing up enough to accept that if people are living a lot longer and, and healthier for longer, then um, perhaps we should be retiring later. But the evidence suggests, you know, of late that that isn't the case. That isn't something that we can rely upon um, anymore. So let's put the right foundations in place to, as I say, like deal with the uncertainties, the things that we can never possibly control about the future. That's what pensions are and should be. Well, I, I think this, if I want to sort of connect this to the last, one of the last conversations I had in this vein, the one um, that I had with uh, uh, Dominic Loyster from LSE about, um, about a sort of energy pricing policy and how decisions sort of made in the late 80s and early 90s have led to the insane energy bills uh, being faced uh, sort of around the sort of broad, broadly speaking West today, right? I think we can sort of see the, the same relationship with uncertainty. Which is um, the, the the mitigation of uncertainty for a small number of preferred players in the economy, uh, people, and 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 the uh, and and that is sold uh, to the public uh, with essentially the same kind of delirious optimism that because everything is going well now in this period of unprecedented capital expansion, um, 
that it will all continue to go well in the future. And so long as not one thing goes wrong at all ever, then this house of cards that we've built to replace the sort of solid foundations that we had will enable more people to say be sheltered for a lower material cost. If you if I can continue the house metaphor. Um but replacing bricks with I mean it it's sort of now I mean it beggars belief that anyone would possibly have, you know, um swallowed that particular load of tripe um that cards could perform the same structural function as bricks so long as, you know, uh, everything remained perfect and the world stopped turning. And yet just as with energy, um as with pensions, you know, at, I'll go back to what we started at the beginning, right? Which is the reality of the reality of these schemes manifestly failing, uh, making some people sink because of a kind of incorrect uh, and cruel ideological belief that some people ought to to preserve the rest of us when they not don't have to. Is now, um, yeah, as I said, it's failing in front of our eyes. The defined contribution schemes, people are running dry, and now. And now something else is going to have to be done because the wild, irrational, risky gamble based on either delirious optimism or optimism or cynicism or a combination of the two appears to have once again run aground. Absolutely. I mean, just one, one just on the um, technical side of it, one difference between the UK and the US is that um, very, very sort of underdeveloped annuities market in the US. So people have the 401k savings and they, they draw down those savings in retirement. Whereas in the UK, typically you would, you know, give your savings to an insurance company who would then pay you a regular income. There's, there's problems in, in both ways of, of organizing it. Um, but if, you, if you're able to do that in the UK, then you won't necessarily run out of money before you die, but you will be living on, because the annuities market is essentially broken, in, in the UK, you'd be living on much less than you you kind of expected to or um, hope to. Um, yeah, but the, the the broader point, you know, I I couldn't agree more. And it's it's, in, it's interesting if we're if we're if we're precise about when the key decisions were made in the UK. I, I, you know, I I think it's easy to say that the sort of factory government and neoliberalisation was a source of all the problems, and there were steps taken along the way to this individualization then but you know it, it was essentially the new, new labor governments of, of the 2000s where the the real real damage isn't was it done. always and uh, i mean that's you know that's you know this is you know among, among political economists it's kind of like a cliche that we didn't really have fully fledged neoliberalism until the social democrats got back in government same in the u.s as well with clinton um obviously um, so you know, so the, the decisions that they made in the in the mid two thousands, like just before the financial crisis, so you know, the, the recognition that it was, a, it was a, you know, things things could be a lot worse than they they are about to be if if the Labour government had done nothing, if they hadn't acted at all and just allowed people to just wholesale stop saving for a pension or just accepted that um, legacy of the factory governments, which was a very real prospect. So things could have been worse if they'd done nothing. But what they decided to do was, you know bet the house on a highly financialized system whereby financial services providers, you know, through market mechanisms would always be able to provide, you know, a, a pension which was comparable to anything that the state could provide or anything that was previously provided, you know, via employers in the occupational pension system. And, you know, with the, with the financial crisis, 2007, 2008, you know, that led to a rethinking of a lot of assumptions about how how stable the finance sector was, and you know how um, 
reliable the products that it offers to the customers were in lots of ways. But strangely, that that sort of rethinking never never entered the sort of pensions terrain, and, and we just sort of went ahead with it. Now, in in advance of the in advance of you know auto enrollment, this defined contribution pensions being sort of rolled out. Um, there were there were serious debates about whether or not the state should provide these new schemes and whether or not we should have yes defined contribution, but it be notional defined contribution like they have in Sweden, whereby it looks like people are saving and getting in what they get out. Actually, the state is managing all of the risks. Ultimately, there were there were serious debates about whether or not the state should become a giant insurance company and provide annuities um, to people, so you you always know that you're getting a you're getting a fair price. Um, you know, obviously a system therefore not run on profit. Um, but in, invariably, I, I, the, whenever these sort of possibilities cropped up, the Labour government chose to go down the, the route that was as marketized as possible. And, you know, that was partly because of sort of ideological zealotry. I wouldn't rule out that explanation, but it's also partly because the analysis suggested it was just as good. It was, the, you know, the financial sector was going to produce outcomes which were just as good as anything the state could provide because you had 20 or so years of, you know, boom in the finance sector and nobody could imagine that it would ever end. So, even, look, even I though have flipped this know. coin 19 times and it's yes. always been heads. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, it, 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 you know, it ha- it's not like the private pension system has, you know, failed to get off the ground since then. It has got off the ground and is delivering products. But, you know, if you... The, out, the kind of outcomes that people are going to be retiring in the next um, 10, 20, 30 years are nothing like what was anticipated when this system of automatic enrollment was put in place in the mid-2000s for all kinds of reasons. Um, it's just just the, the, the ability to think beyond the immediate present circumstances was, was just absent, which is just so frustrating. Well, uh, I think that's... That's brought us around, actually. I think uh, to a to a nice little uh, stopping point that we can put a little bow on uh, is is it came, it came down to being unable to to live outside of yourself. Uh, so, uh, 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 Doctor Barry, I want to thank you so so much for coming on and uh, chatting with me today. This has been extremely interesting. And uh, you out there in podcast land, uh, take a look at your pension because the state sure fucking isn't going to. Um, and uh, where where can people find you online and possibly even uh, if they are uh, interested, take a look at your book. Between gigs at the moment. So yeah, you mentioned that I'm joining UCL, but I'm, I'm starting there in a, in, a, in a couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm, I'm curiously um, off grid. Well, you can you can find my my book on it from all all good retailers and and some not so good retailers as well as Pensions in Peril, published by Oxford University Press. So you heard it, heard it here first. Uh, buy book early, buy book often, uh, but not before contributing to your pension. Uh, I'm going to throw back to either myself or um, my hooting co-hosts in the future past uh, to take us home. Bye, everyone. Well, that was really informative. Deeply intellectually oh, stimulated. I've never been so every second of it. You know what I love is hearing this joke every time this happens. It's good every yeah. time. And now that I'm doing it's, it, I agree. You know, staying for that half hour segment has made me really late for the show, but I'm just going to say, worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. I, I just love sitting there in total silence. So thank you again for listening. We have a Patreon. It's $5 a month. You can get bonus episodes to include Britonology. And we have a second Patreon tier at $10 a month that gives you a second Britonology per month. Mm. Also, we've got live shows. When this comes out, Milo will still be doing his Edinburgh Friends show. So go to that That's if you're in right. Edinburgh. We have a show on the 26th of August. It is sold out. 
uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe. We <laughs> Don't are... come to that. <laughs> no. You will be turned away. Unpacking my suitcase as we speak. However, we also have our tour of Australia, which uh, is basically sold out in Melbourne, but there's a second night in Brisbane, and Sydney tickets have just gone on sale. All the links are in the show notes. Hopefully soon I will have a show link for Canberra. But until then, uh, we really appreciate you being listeners, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.